0: the the middle of, or our second uh, message in, in a series called Truth on Fire, where we're really just taking six weeks out at the start of the year to just look at God from the Bible and just stare at Him until our hearts are filled with passion for who He is from His Word. We believe that both a passion for God and knowledge from His Word belong together, and that's what this series is about. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 23. The book of Acts, just after the Gospels, the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 23. If you don't have it, it's no problem. It's going to be up on the screen, and I'm going to read our passage for this morning uh, before I pray for us. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. This is the Word of God, church. When they were released they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Lord God, we want to thank you for your word this morning. And we want to thank you for the precious gift of a risen king of kings who is sovereign over all things. And so we ask and we pray, Lord, strengthen our hearts this morning from your word. Increase our faith to see you for not who we imagine you to be, but who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was June the 18th of 2023, this past year, when the world was transfixed by the incredible news that a deep sea submarine called the Titan had stopped responding to surface crews with five people on board. I wonder if you remember the story. The Titan was an experimental deep-sea submarine capable of going 4,000 meters deep into the ocean uh, to view the 1912 wreck of the famous ship, the Titanic. Uh, At that depth, just to give you a picture, the pressure per square meter on a vessel like that is 4,000 tons of force per square meter. Incredible feat to design such a submarine. And on board was Oceangate founder Stockton Rush, British billionaire uh, billionaire Hamish Harding, businessman Shahzada Darwood, and his 19-year-old son, Suleiman. And last but not least, uh, Paul-Henri Najle, the famous deep-sea explorer and Titanic expert. And the world was transfixed by this story. Uh, these submarines are so tightly pressurized that they're actually bolted shut from the outside in order to keep appropriate pressure. And so questions were being asked. With limited oxygen supply, were they floating somewhere in the Atlantic, slowly running out of oxygen and suffocating? Uh, could they be found in time before all five on board suffocated? And it almost felt like the entire world was holding its breath as they waited, day after day, for more information. Until, of course, some days later, it emerged that the submarine had imploded during the dive and that the entire crew had died before the water had even touched them. The question I want to ask this morning, I want us to think about together as a church is, why were we so transfixed by this story? Why did we care so much about what was happening in this moment? Why, well, I think there was an element of an intrigue. There's a super rich crew on board paying some $250,000 per person to do something so incredibly risky, trapped inside this vessel, potentially dying. But largely, I put to you that the reason we cared so much, the reason we even knew about this story in the first place, is that we live in a super-connected age with the world at our fingertips. And so we feel deeply about things that a previous generation would never have even heard about in their lives. We feel them so deeply Mark Sayers, the Australian pastor and sociologist, describes it as this kind of digital nervous system we now have as people. We're incredibly connected to the globe at all times like never before. And part of the fruit of that uh, deep connection is that we feel a deep anxiety. You know, when Russia invaded the Ukraine uh, in February 2022, I personally found myself transfixed to the news. Constantly looking at the news for update after update. Shocked that something bad, so bad had happened. But kind of finding this sense of comfort and control in knowing what is happening at the same time. see, this is our modern paradox. We live under this illusion that we're able to control our own lives until something happens that shocks us and confronts us and bursts our illusion, like a global pandemic or a war or a huge natural disaster. And the fruit is we anxiously try and try to gain some sort of sense of control over our lives and what's happening. And we find ourselves kind of doom scrolling on social media or watching the news or rethinking our investments or escaping on holidays or changing careers just to try and carve out for ourselves some small sense that we're in control of what's happening. Uh, Just uh, back in 2019, this uh, large research group called BARNA uh, did a huge study, the biggest study they've ever done of 25,000 18 to 35-year-olds spanning 17 different countries. And the results were so confronting that they titled the study, Life in an Anxious Age. Uh, their results found that anxiety was so prevalent amongst younger people. Uh, 40% struggle with anxiety about important decisions. 40% struggle with anxiety due to un- the uncertainty of the future. 40% struggle with anxiety due to a fear of failure. And 36% struggle with anxiety over a, f- a pressure to be successful. And all of this before COVID, before Gaza, and before the war in Ukraine. Anxiety is an increasing part of what normal life looks like in our world. And maybe you can relate. I wonder if you can relate to this feeling of anxiety. And maybe you find yourself worrying about different things. Worrying about the future. Worrying about relationships. Will you meet the one? Worrying about kids. Will you have them? What will happen to them? Worrying about your workplace situation. Worrying about the environment. Worrying about a place to live. Worrying about finances. Maybe you feel anxious and you just can't even put your finger on what it is you actually even feel anxious about. It's just this kind of low-lying feeling that pervades your life. The question I want us to explore this morning is, how did this happen? How did we become so anxious? Now, it's probably worth noting, uh, important to note, that what I'm not saying is talking about anxiety disorders. Obviously, anxiety disorders are real. Some people are prone to suffering more than others from anxiety and, and have more anxiety attacks than others. That can be a debilitating condition. And we we should expect this in the Bible. The Bible teaches we're whole people. We can have broken bodies. We can have broken minds. We can have broken souls. And yet almost certainly, there are many reasons why we feel so anxious. Interconnectedness that we've never had before, like we've been talking about. Inward Focus that expressive individualism brings to our lives, the rapid pace of change in our culture, the openness to talking about mental health, and the much greater expectations we have upon ourselves than any other generation before us. And yet, there is one huge factor that I put to you has greatly contributed to the rise of our culture of anxiety. One factor that possibly speaks to it more than any other factor at all. Well, what is this factor? A loss of awareness of the God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good. Put another way, as a culture, we've lost sight of the sovereignty of God. If you taken notes this morning, I've entitled this message, God is Sovereign. We have three points really as we dive into this passage and and examine the truths it gives us, really one aim for this morning for us, and that is this. I want us to, to breathe in the doctrine of God's sovereignty so deeply that we would breathe out everything that frightens us. I want us to inhale this doctrine of the sovereignty of God over all things that we would become fearless, fearless of everything. Well, let's dive right in. Point number one, sovereign over creation. Well, just by way of context, our passage this morning comes from the book of Acts. And if you're less familiar with the Bible, this is the kind of, the life of the very first Christians after Jesus sent them on his mission and ascended into heaven. In chapter 3, the chapter before our passage, uh, two of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John, are on their way to the temple late in the afternoon or evening, and they pass a beggar. And this man is in his 40s. He's been disabled since birth. And he's trying to ask for money lying on Solomon's portico, which is this large uh, double-columned uh basically covered walkway that lied on the eastern side of the temple complex. And Peter looks at him and basically says, Look, we're broke, but what we do have, we'll give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And this man is instantly healed. He gets up, he walks. Everyone is amazed. So the crowds gather around, and Peter begins preaching the good news about Jesus right where they're standing. And people are becoming Christians everywhere. And yet the Sadducees, the passage says, were greatly annoyed by this. The Sadducees were the ruling class of priests and temple officials. And they were really angry about all, of this, uh, all this business for two reasons. Firstly, they deeply disliked Jesus. And secondly, they're preaching about the resurrection, which they simply don't believe in. And so they arrest them, but because it's late, they put them in prison uh, overnight before they can... Uh, have a trial and very next day the Sadducees organized their basic basically a version of tribal council Uh, they have Annas who was the most influential of the high priests of that generation all five of his sons would go uh, on to serve as high priest including Caiaphas his son-in-law the current high priest and the whole extended family plus rulers and elders and scribes and they give them a grilling they say how did you do this How did you perform this miracle? In whose name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches Christ to them as the only way of salvation. Now, they don't believe him for a second, but they are amazed because these are two uneducated, plain old fishermen powerfully preaching about Jesus. But the second thing that amazes them is the beggar, it says, is standing right next to them, kind of waving. The guy who'd been healed is right there. And they're completely lost as what to do. So they kind of move them out, have a closed-door session to kind of a team huddle, if you will, to kind of discuss what are they going to do with these guys. And we read the following in verse 18 of chapter 4. It says the following, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answer them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The religious leaders basically say, you've got to shut up about Jesus. And they have this kind of outrageously bold reply. Should we listen to you guys or should we listen to God? But we must tell people about what we've heard. Uh, Verse twenty-one says then that the Sadducees are completely lost with how to handle these guys. It says they further threaten them. I'd love to know what they said. Tell them we're going to get get your mum. No, we've already said that. We can't say that anymore. Tell them we're going to get your next-door neighbour Karen. No, everyone he doesn't like Karen anyway. That's not going to work. I'd love to know how they further threaten them. But further threaten them they do before basically release them out into the city. And then in verse 23, we learn that they head back to tell the other disciples all that had happened and how God had protected them from every harm and enabled them to preach. And they respond in prayer and joyful praise. Uh, Read with me again, verse 24 of our passage says the following. And when they heard it, that is when the disciples heard all that had happened, They lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord, that word means someone who has legal control and authority over people. It means Lord. It means master. That's really the topic we're talking about today. The sovereignty of God. That means God's rule and God's reign over everything that exists in the entire universe. And as the disciples respond to God's faithful protection of Peter and John from harm at the hands of the Sanhedrin, they praise him for his sovereignty over the entire universe. They say, God who made the heavens, that is the sky, the space that's out there, universe. The God who made the earth, the mountains, volcanoes, and valleys. God who made the sea, the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, and everything that's in them, every forest, every fish, every insect, every bird, and every person. I just want to stop for a moment and think about this. I, wanna, I want to you guys to just stop and, and think about the infinitesimally small probability of your own existence. Think with me. How did you get to be here this morning? What, how did it come about that you exist in the first place instead of nothing? The statistical probability of your existence is so incredibly infinitesimally small. Think with me for a moment. The average man lives in this country to 80 years of age. The average man, therefore, through the course of his lifetime will produce about Three trillion sperm cells. Also, uh, a baby girl born today would have inside of her roughly one million eggs. The probability of that one cell of sperm, meaning that one egg is one in three quintillion. Think with me: one in three quintillion. Every couple on the face of the earth has the potential to produce a different variety of people, equivalent to 30 million times the 100 billion people estimated to have lived on the face of this earth. And any variation in that combination would mean you didn't exist. But think with me again to the next level. They couldn't have existed. You couldn't have existed without that exact same thing happening to each one of your parents as well. One in three, quintillion again. The possibility of your existence is so infinitesimally small and unlikely. But according to the Bible, you are not here by chance. You are here because God Almighty ordained you to exist. Formed you in your mother's womb. Knew you before the beginning of time. Now read what our Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He says, speaking on this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You see, Jesus wants to teach his anxious disciples some wonderful truths about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God over creation. God cares for every living creature on the face of the earth. He cares for birds, he cares for flowers, he cares for grass. How much more will he care for those he made in his image and who are most precious to him? God is a father who knows each and every one of your needs and he will take care of you. You can faithfully follow him, says Jesus, even when it costs, assured of his tender care over you. See, our culture says the universe is dark and cold and it operates according to blind chance. Our culture says mother nature is beautiful but cruel and harsh and only the fittest survive. The Bible says nature is not our mother. Nature is our fellow creature. Nature is our sister. The universe is not dark and cold but sustained by the God who is love. In Luke 12, Jesus says that every hair on your head is... Is numbered now obviously that's an easier feat for some than others, but the average head has about a hundred thousand hairs on it and loses between 50 and a hundred each and every day. The Lord knows every one that is lost, not just for us, but every single hair for every single one of the 8.1 billion people on the face of this earth. Adam Ramsey, in the book on the series that we're in, A Truth on Fire, puts it this way. He says, every Christian to some degree is a recovering control freak. It is only when we come to a place of accepting our rightful role as creature rather than creator, as servant rather than master, as child rather than father, that we find the rest we're looking for. If you're here this morning, friends, and you're struggling with this kind of low-lying anxiety, this undercurrent of anxiety, just breathe in the sovereignty of God over all creation. See, when the disciples turned to praise God for delivering Peter and John from the hands of the Sadducees, they first praise God for his sovereignty over all things, over all creation. But not just that, our second point is they turn to praise God for his sovereignty over evil and suffering as well. If you've been tracking with what we've seen so far about God's absolute sovereignty, it's likely to raise some pretty huge objections. How can that be true with all the evil and suffering in the world? And it reminds me of a place I lived or a, a disaster that happened. Uh, Many years ago, nearly, 12, uh, nearly 20 years ago coming up this year, it was uh, December the 26th in 2004 when uh, off the coast of Banda Aceh in North Sumatra, Indonesia, there was a 9.1 on the Richter scale uh, earthquake that caused a 30 meter wave, that's 10 stories high, to come crashing into many places in the world, but particularly this one city of Banda Aceh. I met many friends that were there when it happened, that lived in the place. The earthquake was so severe, they couldn't even stand up off the ground. Buildings collapsed, people were wiped out, and in this one place, 176,000 people were killed on that day. 176,000 people. I remember going to the largest mass grave in Banda Arche, It's a football field with 42,000 people buried in one place. 42,000 bodies on that oval. Unbelievable suffering. Hundreds of thousands killed in Ukraine and Gaza, including women and children. Cancer and disease and suffering that claims little children. Natural disasters in Japan and Turkey and Syria, killing tens of thousands just in the past year. See, the Bible doesn't explain the why behind every instance of evil and suffering in this world. But it does firmly uphold that God is sovereignly in control of it all. Now read with me our passage, verse uh, 25 and 26. It says the following: it says, "Who through the mouth of our Father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves?" And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. As these disciples pray in response to God's deliverance, they quote here from a very famous psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. It's written for the installation of a king, a time when a kingdom would be incredibly vulnerable. And it pictures the nations filled with anger, planning a rebellion against God and his king. But this is not an even fight. There is no contest here. God is completely sovereign. Verse 25 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The psalmist is not looking for an answer. This is a rhetorical question. The psalmist is saying, Why do people waste their time fighting against God? Uh, In Psalm 2, the very next verse goes on to say this, It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them, that's his enemies, in derision. See, there's this idea in popular culture and in many religions that there's this constant even clash between the forces of good and evil in this world and that the outcome is uncertain. It's epitomized by the cartoon character standing with, you know, the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other and they kind of, War it out and fight with each other. And usually the angel goes off in a huff and the demon gets his way with the person. Something like that. Fighting for dominance. But God's sovereignty over creation means there are only two types of existence in this universe. There's God and there's everything else. It means that the world is not an even mix of good and evil. It's overwhelmingly God's good creation. But it is corrupted by God evil and rebellion. See, evil at its core, it's not a separate thing. God didn't make good creatures and then evil ones. Evil is a corruption of what is good. It's a turning away from the God who is good. Just like darkness is not a thing, it's merely the absence of light, so it is with evil. See, there is no competition between good and evil in this world. The Bible teaches us that God is completely sovereign. See, God in His goodness created a perfect world, but a world where rejection of Him was possible. And in God created the world to know Him and to love Him, the source of all that is good. God, the God of self-giving love, that, that His creatures might live forever enjoying His goodness. And yet, humanity chose to reject God and become self determined, replacing the idea of self giving love or the God of self giving love and and giving with self centeredness, a kind of turning in on ourselves, a kind of self focus and self obsession. The result is that in Genesis 3, God promised pain in childbirth, pain in relationships. And curse the ground, making even the earth resist cultivation. A visual picture of the brokenness that now exists between God and his creatures. See, the world is full of evil and suffering, ultimately because of our collective sinfulness and brokenness as people. Romans 8, verse 20 puts it this way. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, we live in a world that's not the way it should be. It's filled with brokenness because of our rejection of God. But this does not mean that God is not sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord over all brokenness and all evil and all suffering in this world. This also does not mean that God is the author of evil. Evil is simply the rejection of God. But God, according to his sovereign mercy and the mystery of his will, allows evil to persist. More, God sovereignly reigns over the evil purposes of humanity and bends them to his goodwill. See, the Bible is filled with stories, time after time after time of God's sovereignty over sinful humanity. Time after time, Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And yet God saves his people from starvation through Joseph, who is raised up as the king over Egypt. Moses, who murders an Egyptian and flees to the wilderness, but God uses him in the wilderness to prepare his people for 40 years of their own in the wilderness. David, who murders Uriah and sleeps with his wife Bathsheba, only to come on to be the mother of Solomon and Jesus' ancestor. And Paul, a persecutor and murderer of Christians who would become the greatest witness the church has ever seen. And Paul writes about this in Colossians 1, the sovereignty of God over all things. When he says this in Colossians 1.15, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen to this. All things were created through him and all things were created for him. See, Jesus Christ sits on the throne of the universe. He is the maker of all that exists. And that includes evil people and forces that have rejected Him, created through Him and for Him. They exist for Him. That is God's purpose, even sinful humanity and evil, to display the glory of Christ on that final day. And there's no clearer example of all of this than in our passage. See, having been rescued from death, they pray the following in verse 27. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They had gathered to do evil against God Almighty. Herod, Pilate, the people of the nations in Israel, their purpose was to commit the greatest sin in the history of the universe to murder the innocent and righteous Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. But gloriously also, Verse 28, the very thing that God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. See, this is a mystery beyond anything we can comprehend. That God in his sovereign power could turn the greatest evil ever committed into the greatest good the world will ever see. For the Son of Man was not simply being murdered, he was laying down his life. Upon the cross as he hung bleeding, taking upon himself the wrath of God for our sin, that he might be raised to life, ascend to the throne of God and continue to reign for us. That God might be just in accepting those who do not deserve his mercy through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, as Jesus was being murdered, not a single person could comprehend what God intended to do through it. And so they mocked him, and they railed against him. If you are the Son of God, then save yourself. It was only after his resurrection that the disciples could see, for the very first time, all that he'd been teaching them. You see, so often in our lives too, this is how we experience evil and suffering. It seems mysterious to us. And yet, because of the cross, we can have confidence, even in the midst of, terrible suffering and evil that God remains sovereignly committed to our good and his glory. In some ways, it's like sitting on the tarmac waiting for a plane to take off on just a sad and gloomy and rainy day with an almost black sky. Here's the truth. It doesn't matter how black that sky is. It doesn't matter how dark that day is. Once you hit attitude, the weather is always the same. The sun in full strength shining brightly down. You know, we'll experience horrible evil and pain in this life, and yet we can rest assured that behind even the darks of clouds shines the smiling face of a God who's always good. See, the truth is there have been some horrible difficulties faced by people in this room this past year. Horrible difficulties. We've had cancer diagnoses. We've had health challenges. We've had relational breakdowns. We've lost loved ones. I think about Em's cousin Rachel this year. If you guys aren't aware, she Rachel Richley, she was diagnosed with breast cancer earlier this year. Advised to go on holidays to prepare for the treatment when her oldest son on their holiday, 17 years of age, fell off a skateboard and died from his injuries. I mean, what an incredibly painful situation. What words can you find to describe how that must have felt? But what a comfort then to know that there is, behind this dark cloud, the shining rays of a God who's altogether good and completely sovereign. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Isn't that true? If he didn't withhold Christ but turn the greatest evil into the greatest good, what would he withhold from you? Friends, if you're honest this morning, what's making you feel anxious right now? Truth is, the vast majority of our fears are about the future. What will happen to those we love? Will they be injured? Will they get sick? Will I have to watch them die? What will happen to me? Will I suffer? Will I be happy? Will I be rejected? Will anyone care? Friends, allow yourself to breathe in deeply this truth. That the Lord Jesus reigns upon the throne of the universe. Finally, point three. Not just sovereign over evil and suffering, as glorious as that is, also sovereign over his mission as well. I wonder if you'd had a near-death experience after proclaiming Jesus. I I wonder how you'd respond. I know how I'd respond. I'd probably be thankful to Jesus, and I'd be praying that God would keep me and my family safe. I'd probably be also hesitant about getting out there again to preach about Jesus, having just nearly uh, lost my life uh, after doing it. Uh, you might also be tempted to think that these guys and their firm belief in the absolute sovereignty of God over and above creation and even evil and suffering might lead them to stop caring about mission. God's sovereign and he'll save who he saves. Let's just have a holy huddle. Let's just come on, get down together in a Christian ghetto and let's just sing kumbaya. That's just not what happens. Read with me verse 29. They pray and they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name, the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The complete opposite is true. Their confidence in God's sovereign power drives them not inwards, but outwards. Their confidence... That Jesus is reigning on the throne leads them to beautifully ask not for their protection but boldness to share. Boldness, that word, means confidence. It means courage. It means fearlessness. They say, Lord, give us courage. Help us to be fearless, to share your word. And we know as we do, you'll stretch out your hands to powerfully work amongst us. It doesn't make you think, why did they pray this way? Why did they pray specifically for boldness? You know what the answer is? They were not bold. They knew intellectually that God was sovereign over all things, but they were profoundly anxious about sharing God with others. What would it cost them? What might happen to them? Would the Sanhedrin come good on their threats and kill them? but they would still have the words of Jesus ringing in their ears from just a few weeks earlier. Matthew 28, when the Lord Jesus had said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, these these disciples knew that Jesus' authority didn't mean stay home and watch Netflix. They knew Jesus' sovereignty meant go in confidence. And so they turned to him for help with their fears, and he powerfully answered them. Verse 31, read with me again. It says, And after they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness as this kind of almost sovereign amen to their prayers, the whole building is shaken. They're filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that God gives them just what they want, fearlessness, to go and share Christ with others. There's so many truths that should motivate us towards wanting to share Christ with others, isn't there? I mean, this is the beauty of God and a desire for Him to be known and to be worshipped by all people. God is so beautiful. There's a love for our friends and awareness of the severity of God's judgment for sin, isn't there? There's a knowledge that life is short, that heaven and hell are eternal and hang in the balance. But nothing motivates faithfulness on mission quite like the sovereignty of God. The truth is that sharing our faith in this city, it can be difficult. There are both obstacles and opportunities. Obstacles, I mean... The city's wealthy, it's busy, it's successful, it's disinterested, it's self-reliant and skeptical. And yet at the same time, there's these opportunities, isn't there? That people are so isolated and lonely and questioning our society and searching for meaning and purpose that secularism cannot provide for them. And personally, at the same time, I can feel like such a failure in this. Struggling to talk with people about faith. Anxious and fearful of what they might think of me and lacking faith that God will meet them. I wonder how we would think differently about mission if we allowed ourselves to breathe in the sovereignty of God. I think if we breathe this in, we would see the Lord Jesus, maker and creator, enthroned on high above everything, sustaining all things and listening in to every conversation. We would see that just as his sovereign grace made short. Sure Work of our resistance. It can save any person he pleases at any time. We would see that even our most hard hearted friends are knit together by him and loved in a way beyond belief. We would see that the mission is not even ours, but it's his, and that victory with Christ is assured. We would see that when Christ returns, every person will be overwhelmed by his presence and fall to their knees. We would see that we participate not because we're needed, but for joy. Because the Sovereign Lord delights to use us and share with us His joy and salvation. We would see that prayer is powerful because the Sovereign King is listening attentively to every word. And we would see that we're no different from these Christians in Acts. The just as God met their weak faith with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, And they proclaimed Christ, and many were saved. So too, he intends to meet us in our anxiety and help us join him on his mission to seek and save the lost. Well, friends, as we come to the end of our time together, I put to you that we live in a world that's changing at lightning speed. We're amazingly connected through a kind of digital nervous system as we've never seen before, but we're also more anxious and more fearful and more introspective than we've ever been before. Our culture says, well, maybe you just need to disconnect and head up the coast away for a week. It doesn't work. I hope you've seen that we don't need to disconnect. We actually need to reconnect with the God who's completely sovereign in all things. I just want to close our time together with a story I've been reading about uh, in the John Piper book, 21 Servants for Your Joy. It's the story of John G. Patton, He was a Scottish pastor and missionary to Vanuatu. And you might think, well, to Vanuatu, come on, that sounds delightful. But just to put it in context, in 1839, the first uh, missionaries arrived in Vanuatu, and minutes after they got off their boat were killed and eaten by cannibals. Uh, So it wasn't as friendly a place as it is today then. And this uh, pastor, Patton, he was widely criticized uh, for going to Vanuatu. He had a successful ministry in Scotland and a young wife who was soon to be pregnant. And a certain Mr. Dixon exploded at Patton saying, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. And he replies famously as follows. He says, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. What a fighting spirit there. Uh, and this was true of his whole life. See, Patton went on to move to Vanuatu, landing on the island of Tanna in 1858 with his young wife, Mary. And though both his young wife, Mary, and newborn child died of illness some months later, though he faced many, many attempts on his life, he continued serving the Lord. And he recounts one instance where two local men are planning on killing him and arguing together over who will land the first blow. And he writes the following, and this is what I want to end with. He said, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ who is all power in heaven and on earth. Immortal till my master's work with me is done. Friends, breathe in his sovereignty and breathe out everything that you fear. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for the beautiful truth that you are the sovereign Lord of everything. Lord, we come to you this morning as your people on bowed knee, Asking your forgiveness, Lord, because often we don't see you as such a God as this. We so often have you in mind as the pocket-sized, toothless, small God of small things. And Yet this morning we wish to declare that you are the sovereign Lord over everything. You can turn the greatest evil to the greatest good, Lord God. So as your people together, collectively, we cry, help us trust you more. Help us lean more upon your grace. Help us experience your peace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.